From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. Inside a crammed hobby shop in Rockville, Maryland, a little drone that can fit in the palm of your hand is whizzing back and forth. This thing can go really, really fast. If I were to put it into its top flight mode, I can get from here to the front of the store to the back of the store probably in less than three seconds. It's got enough juice. Robert Sumner works at Hobby Works in Rockville Federal Plaza. We sell drones, among other things. Um, the quadcopters or drones, as you might know them, have uh, been recently taking off in popularity. It's not just here. Some experts say a million drones could be sold this holiday season. And in five years, the global market could reach a billion dollars. As Robert Sumner says, there's a drone out there for everyone. I'm seeing, you know, men and women both buying this, mostly for their kids. But, you know, there's also the the men and women that are just like really into the idea of flying in general. Here, basic models start at $30, but you could spend over a thousand bucks for high-end drones featuring high-def cameras that can stream video live to an app. Sumner says it's mainly professionals who are buying those. Most people that are utilizing these cameras on the drones are doing things for like real estate inspections, roofing inspections. People are uh, going out and inspecting bridge work, uh, you know, for the government to just see like, okay, this is where we're having structural integrity problems. But as drones are becoming more ubiquitous in the skies, people are worrying about their use. New rules are being rolled out by the FAA for hobbyists to register their drones. And now cities like Chicago are putting restrictions on how high you can fly and how close you can get to sensitive areas like airports. Sumner says these concerns are overblown. I don't see there being a big problem. So I guarantee you if we called them quadcopters, which is their proper nomenclature, nobody would be concerned about it. But because we're calling them drones, that's obviously got a lot of connotations attached to it already thanks to the predator drones that the military uses. They are not the same thing even remotely. Okay, so just to refresh your memory, this is what a hobby shop drone sounds like. And this is what a military predator drone sounds like. For perspective, the largest commercially available drone has a 16-foot wingspan and can carry about 22 pounds, usually a camera or a small package. The predator has a 55-foot wingspan and can carry about 450 pounds, like one or two Hellfire missiles. The U.S. military reportedly has around 150 predators, along with about 95 of the even larger Reapers. These drones fly regular missions over Pakistan, Yemen, and now, increasingly, Syria. They're being used to fight the Islamic State and other terrorist organizations without putting soldiers' lives at risk. A recent U.S. drone strike killed the ISIS militant known as Jihadi John, one of the world's most wanted terrorists. And now the British Air Force is stepping up its use of armed drones in Syria as it coordinates with France in response to the terrorist attacks in Paris. As we'll see throughout this hour, drones are revolutionizing aerial warfare. It's an amazing leap forward, considering that modern aviation itself is barely a century old. Before the 1930s, aerial missions were mainly for reconnaissance and mapping, though primitive hand grenades were dropped by the Germans over London during World War I. The Germans believe that bombs over London will weaken the will of a populace. A giant zeppelin leaves its base for a night raid. 
It was the fighter bombers of World War II that ushered in the era of aerial combat. Firebombing used by the Nazis over cities like Rotterdam terrorized civilian populations and were intended to demoralize the enemy. Eventually, the war became total and global, and before it was over, both sides were using air power against civilian populations, culminating in the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bomb weighed 9,000 pounds and was as powerful as 12,500 tons of TNT. The fireball was 18,000 feet across. But during the Vietnam War, a new technology was introduced that would ultimately lead to a new strategy for American aerial attacks. A pencil-thin beam of invisible laser light is shown onto the target from the aircraft. When the bomb is released, it will steer itself toward the reflected light. High-precision gyroscopes and advanced computers were making it possible to fly long-range missiles with astounding accuracy. And in recent years, with the help of GPS technology, high-definition cameras, and vastly improved computing power, the military has been able to eliminate onboard pilots altogether for missions that can be controlled from anywhere. The modern drone, or unmanned aerial vehicle, was born. The first UAV that could do all of this was the Predator. There's some earlier use of drones for intelligence and surveillance in Vietnam and by the Israelis in the 80s. Sarah Kreps is a professor at Cornell University and the author of two recent books on drones. But what we think of as the modern type of drone, this medium altitude, long endurance drone like the Predator or the Reaper, was in the 1990s in Bosnia. But these were unarmed. For the next few years, there was a lot of back and forth about whether the U.S. should arm drones. That debate ended after 9-11. So we armed predators with Hellfire missiles. And I think it was, again, in this context of we need to throw everything at this problem of terrorism. In February of 2002, the first American armed drone strike operated by the CIA hit its target in northern Afghanistan. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld addressed the media at the Pentagon. A decision was made to fire the Hellfire missile. It, it was fired. It apparently hit three people. There is an investigation underway. So this is Rumsfeld, and he's wanting to conduct these, what he called this light footprint. So he said, look at what the Soviets did in Afghanistan in the 80s. They sent in divisions and divisions of infantry. Clearly that didn't work. And so predators fit right in with that idea that you could have this light footprint, not even have them based in Afghanistan, send them in, conduct their strikes and come back out and not have any casualties. In November of 2002, a drone strike in Yemen. Six suspected terrorists have been killed in Yemen in a strike by a pilotless American spy plane. The target, al-Qaeda terrorists who were believed to have been responsible for the 2000 attack on the USS Cole, which killed 17 American sailors and injured 39 others. What was different about 2002 was that we were not involved in an armed conflict in Yemen. And suddenly we see this target in Yemen and the United States uses an armed predator to take out this suspected terrorist. The overwhelming majority of Americans and members of Congress of both parties supported using drones to retaliate against terrorists who killed Americans. Between 2001 and 2008, the Bush administration carried out about 50 of those in Pakistan and Yemen. Since 2008, so between in the Obama administration, it has been more than 450. The use of drones became a central pillar of the Obama administration's approach toward terrorism. The president even made a joke about them at the 2010 White House Correspondents' Dinner. The Jonas Brothers are here. 
They're out there somewhere. Sasha and Malia are huge fans. But uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. <laughs> you will never see it coming. It's interesting to note that the Obama administration has said that it has a preference for capture versus killing suspected terrorists. But in 90% of cases where we've gone after suspected terrorists, we've killed them rather than captured them. And, uh, you know, there are obvious reasons for why. It's, these are terrorists for a reason. They, they're, they're armed and dangerous. And hard to reach. Senator John McCain, the current chair of the Armed Services Committee, addressed this on CNN. We are now facing a new form of warfare. These non-state terrorist organizations that are spread all over Hell's Half Acre. And really the only way you can get at them uh, that we know of now that's viable is through the drone operations. What I think it suggests is, or illustrates is sort of the perceived virtues of armed drones, which is, you know, you go in with special forces, you try to capture the guy, you encounter enemy fire, you withdraw because this is not going to be very good PR for really anyone. And it's, again, much more um, anti seemingly antiseptic to just send in the armed drone and kill the person. Plus, if you kill the terrorists, you don't have to worry about where to put them. What we know is that the Obama administration has been trying to close Guantanamo. So what do you do with these suspected terrorists if you capture them? And these are like political hot potatoes. No member of Congress wants to say that this suspected terrorist is now being tried in their district. The political reality has become that targeted killings through drones is just a less risky proposition. In September of 2011, American citizen and known terrorist Anwar al-Awlaki was killed by a drone strike in Yemen. Two weeks later, his 16-year-old son was reported dead in the same region. While widely supported by the public and the courts, the attack began to raise questions about the legitimacy of these strikes. Here's Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul. I rise today in opposition to the killing of American citizens without trials. I rise today to oppose the nomination of anyone who would argue that the president has the power to kill an American citizen not involved in combat and without a trial. In May of 2013, President Obama gave a speech in which he acknowledged publicly growing criticism of the drone program and the policy that had become known as targeted killing. He promised the collateral damage was minimal. Before any strike is taken, there must be near certainty that no civilians will be killed or injured. The highest standard we can set. But just a few months later, a drone struck a wedding party in Yemen, killing at least 12 civilians. It's likely the civilian group fell victim to the attack after being mistaken for an al-Qaeda convoy. Well, let's go live. In January of 2015, a CIA-led drone strike killed two hostages in Pakistan, an Italian and an American. President Obama addressed the mistake in April. It is a cruel and bitter truth that in the fog of war generally, and our fight against terrorists specifically. Mistakes, sometimes deadly mistakes, can occur. By many indicators, the drone program has been a real success. It's had bipartisan support in Congress and has been widely seen as playing an important role in degrading al-Qaeda. Plus, relative to more traditional forms of warfare, the rates of civilian casualties have been pretty low. But now, after the attacks in Paris and Beirut, the down plane in Egypt, and the killings in a Mali hotel, many say we're not any closer to defeating the enemy. 
And in just a few years, drone technology will be available to practically everyone. More on that after the break. You're listening to How Drones Are Reshaping the World on America Abroad. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to How Drones Are Reshaping the World on America Abroad. We've learned what the U.S. can do to other nations with drones, but what if America's adversaries get a hold of them? Well, it seems one already has. During a recent military celebration in the North Korean capital, Pyongyang, goose-stepping soldiers, tanks, and allegedly nuclear-tipped missiles were paraded past the cheering throngs. But that wasn't all. Six sky-blue aircraft were also on display. These are believed to be some of the reclusive nation's fleet of military drones. North Korea's drones aren't just a threat to South Korea's security. They're also a concern for the United States, which stations about 28,000 American soldiers near the Demilitarized Zone, or DMZ. And as Seoul-based reporter Jason Struther tells us, some of these drones have already crossed the border. When traveling by train in South Korea, you can't go any further north than Baekmagoji Station. I walk about 15 minutes from here before hitting the DMZ. After this, it's all rice paddies and landmines leading up to North Korea. Even though the two Koreas signed a ceasefire agreement back in 1953, shots are still fired across this border. And according to Seoul's Ministry of National Defense, Pyongyang dispatches drones across the DMZ, too. In September, military officials here reported they spotted a North Korean drone in South Korean territory. A helicopter and fighter jet were scrambled to intercept it, but the UAV got away. But others haven't made it back. Since 2014, the defense ministry says it's recovered four crashed North Korean drones. Martin Williams, who runs the North Korea tech blog, believes these aircraft were on a recon mission. It looks like they were flying into South Korea to take photographs of the border area, uh, which is where, of course, South Korea and the United States have a lot of troops and a lot of military equipment. Uh, They did have these uh, rather expensive digital cameras on board, uh, probably uh, cameras that cost several thousand dollars. But it's not only the border that North Korean drones have flown over. The defense ministry says at least one of these UAVs made it all the way here to downtown Seoul. Local media went into panic mode. On the front page of one paper was a picture taken from the seized drone. The headline said it was just 20 seconds away from the president's house. This part of town is also home to the American embassy and the U.S. ambassador's residence. I've seen two of these drones in person. They're painted sky blue with wingspans of about six and eight feet, one was airplane-shaped and the other a glider. Bu Hyunuk, a researcher at the government-affiliated Korea Institute for Defense Analyses, has seen the UAVs too and says they're primitive, the kind that you can make with open-source technology. But he says the defense ministry believes these aren't the only types of drones that North Korea possesses. Uh, they have 320 drones and 10 of them the American made. That includes the Raytheon Streaker, a target drone that was first made in the 1970s and is no longer in production. Pyongyang is believed to have acquired those from Syria. Bu says the regime uses these old American as well as Russian drones as models to make its own modified UAVs, like the ones seen in the North Korean military parade. 
He says they're designed to carry one kilogram, or about two pounds of TNT, but that's not his biggest concern. What if they can carry chemical weapon? One kilogram of anthrax, that can cause 10,000 people's... They could kill up to 10,000 people. Yeah, that's a scary scenario. That scenario is still a ways off, says longtime North Korea watcher Joseph Bermudez, chief analytics officer at All Source Analysis in Longmont, Colorado. He says for now, it doesn't seem that North Korea's drones are capable of relaying real-time images back to base or flying far distances. But the U.S. and South Korean militaries would have a problem on their hands if Pyongyang were to acquire the technology to do so from its allies like China or Iran. Should they acquire additional drones in number or additional drones with additional or greater capabilities, it complicates uh, operational planning. Bermuda says Washington is more concerned with North Korea's nuclear weapons and long-range missile programs than its drones. Plus, there's no foolproof way for the U.S. or South Korea to prevent Pyongyang surveillance UAVs from infiltrating southern airspace. He says it takes a combination of better intel, radar systems, and weaponry. Some of these smaller North Korean drones aren't really worth using a surface-to-air missile against. However, the next layer above the uh, ground-based anti-aircraft guns would be a helicopter. An attack helicopter is extremely effective against UAVs of the type the North Koreans have. The South Korean military has another plan. It's contracted with a local university to develop technology that could be used for a fleet of attack drones. A soccer field at the Science and Technology Graduate School, KAIST, is where Shim Hyun Chol, head of the Unmanned Systems Research Group, and his students are testing their quadrotor UAV. Uh, this is our drone with uh, the uh, vision computer. It has a camera there, so it, is, it has a special camera. It is a fisheye lens. So the The attack drone works in tandem with another UAV. They detect the enemy aircraft, which is hovering on the opposite side of the field, and go after it together. The smaller of the two releases a nylon net over the enemy drone in midair. The net gets caught in the rotors, and it crashes to the ground. The second drone would then deliver its payload, a small vehicle that picks up the fallen UAV and brings it back to base. Shim says neutralizing drones with other drones could be the safest way to combat invading North Korean UAVs. There are many ways. You can shoot it down with bullets or you can use uh, lasers. Some of those just cannot be used, especially in the, the densely populated area. The Seoul metropolitan area is less than 40 miles south of the DMZ and is home to about 25 million inhabitants. Defense analyst Bu Hyunuk says that if fighting were to ever break out here, drones could be at the forefront on both sides. Next uh, Korean war uh, is an urban warfare. If you are fighting in the urban area, complexity grows exponentially. So we do need many, many dreams, many kind, huge, small, uh, medium, and very, very tiny uh, drones. And as more North Korean drones make it across the border or are put on parade, Boo says South Korean and American forces need to bolster their UAV programs faster than North Korea enhances its own. For America Abroad, I'm Jason Struther in Seoul, South Korea.
There are more than 90 countries throughout the world that have drones today, as do a number of non-state actors like Hamas and Hezbollah, Libyan rebel groups, and ISIS. 30 countries either have armed drones or are developing armed drone programs. Pakistan and Iraq recently joined the list of countries with armed drones. And according to our next guests, drones will be available to nearly everyone soon. This will have a major impact, not just on U.S. foreign policy, but on regional conflicts around the world. I spoke with two senior fellows from the Center for a New American Security. Paul Shari is director of the Future of Warfare initiative there, and Ben Fitzgerald is director of the Technology and National Security Program. I asked Ben to explain an incident over the East China Sea back in 2013. What happened was the Chinese, on the anniversary of the Japanese claiming or repurchasing the Senkaku Islands, they flew a drone directly at those islands. Uh, It was a drone that looked a lot like a a U.S. Predator-style drone. Uh, It was unarmed. They flew directly at those islands. They did not enter Japanese airspace. Nonetheless, the Japanese had to scramble two manned fighters, I believe they were F-15s, to escort that drone out of the area. Uh, So no shots were fired, but immediately after that, the Japanese said, if anyone flies a drone into our airspace, we will shoot it down as a matter of policy. The Chinese responded by saying, anyone who shoots down one of our drones, we will view that as an act of war, the same as if you were shooting down one of our manned aircraft. So we have different sides arguing in what ways they will interpret the use of drones and the implications of prosecuting those drones. We can figure those things out. We shouldn't be doing it on the precipice of an international conflict, uh, which is exactly what happened there. Um, And I think that we can see many more of these examples that are going to come up time and time again in the coming months and years. We've seen similar things happen recently with India and Pakistan as well. With drones, the the two are sending drones across each other's airspace? Yes, the India-Pakistan example was very interesting. The, The Pakistanis recently lodged a formal diplomatic complaint against the Indians for flying a surveillance drone, as they called it, into Pakistani airspace. The thing that made it particularly interesting was, and, and the Pakistanis shot it down. The, the drone, however, was actually a commercially available Chinese-manufactured drone that, that a hobbyist could purchase here in America. So it's unclear who actually owned the drone, who really shot it down. Was it being used by the Indian army or not? Was it being used by a Pakistani group? Was it just being used by a hobbyist? Who owned the drone and for what purpose was it actually being used? It had the potential to, again, cause an international incident, even though the technology itself was fairly simple. Well, let me sort of address this issue of commercially available drones. The widespread availability of this technology really complicates the issue because not only do more actors have access to drones, like non-state groups and even individuals, but states could use some of these commercially available drones in ways that are maybe deniable or covert. And so they could conduct operations with drones and then potentially deny that it was theirs um, because there are no national markings on them, because it's something that you could purchase online, which sort of changes the dynamic um, and opens up new possibilities for what countries might do with drones. And the interesting thing is that we're already seeing states provide drones to non-state actors. And the clearest examples we have here is Iran providing drones to Hezbollah and to Hamas. When they do that right now, we can recognize those drones. Um, But 
in future they'll be able to provide a commercial drone or the non-state actor might just be able to get hold of the drone itself. What does all this mean for U.S. military leaders and U.S. military doctrine? I think at the tactical level, certainly the U.S. military is waking up to the threat of potentially low-cost, widely available drones. And people are starting to look into counter-drone technologies to shoot down drones, to jam them, to trap them in nets or other ways. Um, Certainly a wake-up call to the U.S. security establishment was when a hobbyist drone crashed on the White House lawn earlier this year. That was a harmless event. A off-duty government worker who was apparently drinking lost control of his drone and it crashed in the White House lawn. But that sort of raises this concern. So I think at the tactical level, people are thinking through these things. At the strategic level, that's another matter in terms of what are the implications for, say, a crisis like what uh, happened between Japan and China a few years ago. And so I would add, when we think about things at the strategic level, I think that there's a general recognition that drones are proliferating and that the United States needs to think about drones differently. But we haven't yet started taking practical action about that. A lot of the drone discussion still gets caught up in our counterterrorism policy and our controversial use of drones uh, in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Yemen. What we haven't yet started to realize is that All of these countries are going to have drones. They're going to use them in different ways. They're going to think that they mean different things and that we need to develop a policy solution or set of solutions to address that. Who's creating the drones? Where are they built? Almost every country on the planet is developing their own indigenous drones program. The number one exporter of drones in the world right now is Israel. The United States may be catching up soon based on opening our export policies a little bit. But the biggest producers are Israel, the United States, China. The Russians have been a little bit behind the game, but are catching up. The Iranians have spent a lot of time uh, investing in these technologies as well. But this is going to be a thing where everyone's going to be able to develop them indigenously or purchase them commercially very easily. So if the United States is not the biggest exporter or the biggest builder of drones, how can it lead then in this discussion in terms of limiting the use of them to its allies? So while the U.S. isn't the largest exporter, the U.S. certainly has a very leading role internationally in the use of drones and in set a precedent for how drones are used. And unfortunately, the way the U.S. has been using drones, which I think makes sense from a U.S. national security perspective, probably doesn't make as much sense when you imagine a world where everyone has drones. And I don't think U.S. policymakers have totally caught up to that world. And the approach so far has been this idea of, well, we just won't sell drones to people. But as Ben explained, other countries already have them. The Israelis are selling them to everyone and the Chinese as well. So the approach that we've thought about here and have been advocating is one of targeted sales to partner countries, close countries like Jordan, that are conditional based on countries agreeing to certain principles for how to use drones, that they'll use them in accordance with the rule of law. And the Obama administration came up with a new policy in the spring of last year that articulated this, and now there's sort of a slow process of action catching up to that policy. When you speak to U.S. policymakers about drone use, there is a general agreement that what we want to see is a clear normative framework, rules of the road for how we use drones. And I think internationally, people will will want to see that as well. However, 
in the short term, there are always expedient reasons to use drones in ways that don't meet those rules. Uh, so, and I think that we can look at the U.S. use of drones in Pakistan for counterterrorism as a great example of that. If another country, for example, China, was to go after terrorists like the Uyghurs inside Pakistan with Chinese drones and strike them, the United States would be apoplectic. Uh, we would be very concerned about that as a precedent. And yet it's a precedent that we ourselves set. So we really need to think about how do we lead globally and set an example that we're comfortable with, knowing that everyone else will have similar technology, if not now, in the very near future. That's Paul Shari and Ben Fitzgerald, both with the Center for a New American Security in Washington. You're listening to How Drones Are Reshaping the World on America Abroad. Coming up, drones aren't only used for war, they can be used for peaceful purposes, too. Visit our website for images, special features, and more. We're at americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to How Drones Are Reshaping the World on America Abroad. Drones may be best known for their surveillance and military capabilities, but there's a growing movement to use them for humanitarian aid. We head now to Stanford University, where we meet the creator of an innovative project. He's building drones to deliver humanitarian aid to Syrians stuck inside their war-torn country. But as Andrew Stelzer reports, bureaucracy combined with public fears about the use of drones has hamstrung efforts to get that aid anywhere near the Syrian border. Mark Jacobson leads me through a maze of children's toys in his little apartment a few miles from Stanford University. We head to a small patio out back. And here, sitting on folding tables, within earshot of kids playing and mothers pushing strollers, are the technological wonders that could save the lives of thousands of Syrian people. Most of the rest of the aircraft are piled in my bedroom. That's what we have to work with. This is the home of Uplift Aeronautics and the Syria Airlift Project. So that's the sound of our autopilot turning on. Besides being a PhD student, Jacobson is also an active Air Force officer. During a stint in eastern Turkey, he was frustrated at the inability to get aid into Syrian villages and neighborhoods that were cut off by either the government or rebels. And that got me thinking that maybe if you can't get a big airplane in, you could get a lot of little airplanes in. A totally different paradigm for airdropping aid. Jacobson shows me a couple of planes and how he can control them from his laptop. One plane is so small and light it can be launched by hand. Another is nicknamed Walid named after a Syrian doctor I met who would uh, rush to the sound of attacks to go help people. And this is a little bit larger plane, capable of carrying uh, about a one kilogram payload in a box like this and airdropping it by parachute. So the vision is to develop a system to use large numbers of planes like this one to deliver small packages of aid in places that land transport or big aircraft can't safely get in. With 10 drones flying all night, he estimates they could deliver 400 pounds of aid. Well, it has to be high value and low mass. So, for example, there's people who've died in Syria because they can't get insulin. There's been hospitals having to reuse blood bags because they can't get clean ones. 
during the Nepal earthquake, we had someone call us that was asking for help delivering water purifiers to isolated villages they couldn't get to. So I don't think two-pound packages are going to apply for everybody, but in certain specific cases, two pounds can mean the difference between life or death. Jacobson has developed strategies to keep the bad guys from hacking in and getting control of the drones. He's got the cost of each one down to about $500. After doing some test flights and raising almost $40,000 in an online crowdfunding campaign, Jacobson was hoping he'd be delivering aid to Syria by the summer of 2015. But as winter approaches, these prototype UAVs sit on his back patio waiting for funding, partners, and Turkish government approval. The whole idea of using drones in conflict zones has been controversial because of their legacy as weapons. There's a lot of skepticism and distrust among aid organizations. And that skepticism isn't limited to aid organizations or even to conflict zones in the Middle East. Right here in California, there's an ongoing debate about drone surveillance and safety. Almost an hour north of Stanford, in Alameda County, a small group gathers outside a board of supervisors meeting. Nadia Kayali is one of a dozen people standing under a 10-foot-long model of a predator drone. Alameda County Against Drones, in fact, believes that the potential concerns with drones are too great to justify any use of drones at all in Alameda County. The, the potential payoff is minuscule compared to the potential abuse of civil liberties and privacy. Inside, Alameda County Sheriff Greg Ahern is facing a larger group of concerned citizens, defending his intent to spend $31,000 on a drone for search and rescue and other emergencies. He's facing a hostile crowd, though. We will not ever put weapons on that system. So, so okay. now you can have it in writing, you can have it in word, you can have it in the hearing. No weapons go on that system. Michael Rubin with the local Green Party wasn't convinced. What I hear is that law enforcement is asking us to trust them. And frankly, I believe that the level of trust required to embark on this is totally absent with large parts of this community. On this day, back in 2013, the drone opponents had their way. The county government refused permission for the purchase. It's just one of many examples of Americans pushing back against drones. More than a dozen states restrict drone use, and many cities and counties have passed their own drone bans or restrictions. There is going to be a great deal of public resistance uh, to the use of UAVs, even in the case of humanitarian aid, because it's an unknown technology. Terry Meathy is a criminal justice professor at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. He's part of a team of researchers who've been studying public perceptions of drones. In a 2014 survey, they found 93% of adults are opposed to the use of drones to monitor people's daily activities. Less than half support the use of drones for monitoring criminal activity in public places, and only a third think governmental use of drones increases personal safety at all. There needs to be a, a citizen buy-in to any kind of technology, and I think that's the important sociological question, is how do you get a buy-in in a technology that has been used in military operations and a technology that has enormous potential uh, but also some uh, kind of scary consequences. Joel Lieberman, chair of UNLV's criminal justice department, says a major event involving drones could be a game changer. You can think about 
Hurricane Katrina or similar situation where a river floods and people are cut off and they're unable to get food and medical supplies. And the cavalry appears in the form of drones flying across that river and into the flooded areas and delivering those packages and um, people seeing the good that can result from drone use. And I think that really will shift public opinion. I'll have you stand right over here so you're not in the plane of propeller in case something happens. Mark Jacobson says his Syria airlift project could greatly benefit from some clarity from the government. Commercial operators like him have been waiting years for regulations from Congress. The biggest problem right now is there's no legal standards or rules for how drones should be used. And in that vacuum, a lot of bad stuff is happening. There's not agreement over who can use them, where they can fly them. So that's feeding the public distrust of drones. But because the public distrust, the FAA and other organizations have been slow to figure out new guidance. So we're all kind of working in a vacuum. For now, Jacobson sits frustrated while hundreds of Syrians die every week. For America Abroad in Stanford, California, I'm Andrew Stelzer. The Syria Airlift Project may be having a hard time getting off the ground, but there is one government-funded drone project that is making headway. Since late 2013, the United Nations has been using drones for surveillance and other peacekeeping missions in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Walter Dorn is a professor at the Canadian Forces College and the Royal Military College of Canada, and he's been consulting with the UN for the last 15 years, specifically on how drones and other technology can be used to enhance peace. They are being used for route reconnaissance to see whether there's routes that are flooded that convoys can't pass. They're used to look at militia activity. Um, You can record their atrocities. You can use the drones for distribution of aid. You can look at for IDP, internally displaced people's movement, or refugee movement to tell where they're going so you can be there to have food and shelter and water set up for these people when when they arrive at their destination. It's an eye in the sky that keeps watch on the common interest. They're keeping an eye on the Congolese government, too, with the government's permission. Obviously, they can't uh, spy on personal privacy. Um, They shouldn't be trying to undermine the government, but they should actually help the government with its governance of what I call the wild east of the Congo, which is uh, where there's so many nefarious groups working at cross-purposes and indeed in a place where there are still massacres going on. Government buy-in has been the single biggest challenge to more widespread use of drones for humanitarian aid. Both Syria and South Sudan refuse to grant the U.N. permission to fly drones in their countries. And the lack of regulations for use of unmanned aerial aircraft for peacekeeping missions is slowing progress in some of the most high-risk regions. So the U.N. is grappling with this now and, and coming up with its own rules of engagement and rules for flying these drones. Tech pioneer Patrick Meyer is hoping to help. He's the founder of the Humanitarian UAV Network. The mission of the Humanitarian UAV Network, or UAVators, is to enable the safe, effective, and responsible use of UAV technology in a wide range of humanitarian settings. In November of 2013, Meyer was recruited by the UN to help coordinate relief efforts in the aftermath of Typhoon Haiyan. Within a week of my being in the Philippines, I had come across half a dozen UAV teams coming in with small UAVs, and this was completely unprecedented. I still remember you know, going online in my office at the UN Manila and Googling um, 
disaster response UAV's code of conduct and coming up was absolutely nothing, which alarmed me because what I was looking for was some guidelines that I could share with all these UAV teams and say, hey, folks, you know, there are established guidelines here in terms of data sharing, coordination, collaboration, and so on, but there was nothing. So within a few weeks of uh, leaving the Philippines, I founded the Humanitarian UAV Network. One of their first projects was to draft this code of conduct. It was rough, but it contained some basic rules of engagement, how to manage, share, and store all the data drones collect, how to engage with local communities in a way that doesn't feel like an invasion of their privacy. These are all concepts the aid community has used for years, but made specific for the drone age. The idea is not that we have to reinvent the wheel or start from scratch. We simply have to take the existing protocols and guidelines that have been followed in the humanitarian space for decades, and apply them and fold them into aerial robotics. Meyer's organization has been working with the Red Cross, USAID, and other aid organizations to fine-tune these guidelines. Meyer and his team plan to present them to the UN in early 2016. There is vast untapped potential for drone use in the developing world. In recent years, an explosion of initiatives has popped up across the continent of Africa, from unmanned peacekeeping missions in the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Facebook's high-hovering drones that bring the Internet to remote places. But the technology has proliferated faster than regulations can keep up, and a few nervous governments have brought them back down to earth in a hurry. Emily Johnson reports from Nairobi. Right now we have all green. See, it's flashing one green. So we are good to go. A small drone mounted with a GoPro camera lifts off, hovering over a field in the outskirts of the Kenyan capital of Nairobi. The drone operator keeps it low. The highest we normally take it up is 100 meters, not more than 100 meters. The two men I'm standing with here today run an aerial photography company, They've asked me to withhold their names because what they're doing is technically illegal. In January of this year, Kenya issued restrictions on drones that, for all intents and purposes, have amounted to a ban. Anyone who wants to fly one has to secure permission from both the Ministry of Defense and the Civil Aviation Authority. There's a friend of mine who applied uh, in March, and uh, still till today he hasn't gotten a feedback from KCA. The ban has certainly caused headaches for small businesses, like the one run by our illicit aerial photographers here. But it's also put the brakes on bigger initiatives, like a drone journalism project called African Sky Cam. Dickens Alewe is recently returned from California and looks at home sitting in a Nairobi coffee shop. During his stint at Stanford University as a John S. Knight journalism fellow, he organized Silicon Valley's first drone journalism conference, he founded African Skycam back in 2012 and has plenty of thoughts on how drone journalism could change the news landscape in Kenya. And around about that time, we had floods in Kenya. And what would happen maybe a week after, you know, journalists beaming all these pictures across the country was that the government would organize uh, like an aerial tour of these areas. And for me, there was a question of editorial independence because I think that was more like a PR kind of a you know, PR tour. So I thought consumer drones uh, offered an opportunity. Since then, Olewe has created interactive features with 3D models by stitching together hundreds of images taken with drones. He's also used the technology to explore live casting virtual reality content. So we've done all that, uh, but as I speak to you uh, today, uh, we are not doing anything. 
This, of course, is because of the ban. A ban that, by all accounts, was caused by a news drone that flew a little too close to the sun. So the reason why the, the government uh, imposed this ban in January was that in December 2014, that was you know, the National Day celebration uh, at Nyayo Stadium, somebody flew a drone, I think a few minutes before the president arrived. So they kind of messed up the space for us. An excess of caution is perhaps understandable in this East African nation. Kenya has suffered a series of deadly attacks at the hands of al-Shabaab terrorists in the last few years. Most recently, the April massacre of 147 students at Garissa University. KCAA Director General Captain Gilbert Kibe is on the record calling terrorism a concern when it comes to drone proliferation. But Olewe is optimistic that the ban will not last much longer, mainly because of good old-fashioned competition between nations. What's really interesting was South Africa also did the same thing. You know, they basically said, we are concerned about the use of this equipment, but we also appreciate the amazing potential of the technology. And therefore, we are restricting a ban for one year as we engage the industry and we will publish some rulemaking in one year, which they did in May this year. So I think the Kenyan government, uh, through the aviation authority, are looking into that and say, hey, you know, we cannot be left behind. An official at the Kenya Civil Aviation Authority confirmed that comprehensive regulations were in the works, but did not say when they would be released. Coming up with these regulations will be no small task. Moses Kishanga is a researcher who has advised the Kenya government on using drones in anti-poaching efforts. He ticks off a long list of hurdles. First, what happens if a drone hurts someone? Who bears responsibility? Who's, who's culpable? Supposing they gave you a license, let's talk about insurance. How, who's going to insure me? They, right now, insurance companies in Kenya, they, don't, they have no framework for how they would even tackle your, you. you know? If you get the license to do, do it, you're going to have problems because now you have to think about how do I do it. These rank among other problems like keeping unmanned aerial vehicles out of flight paths and balancing consumer drone safety with keeping them low cost. They're thorny problems that even developed nations like the U.S. have struggled to answer. Until someone does, our Kenyan photographers will just keep on flying under the radar. For America Abroad, this is Emily Johnson in Nairobi, Kenya. Here in the United States, drones are also proliferating. Last year, the Federal Aviation Administration approved 12 commercial drone permits. This year, it approved more than 2,000, with about 50 new permits every week. Meanwhile, the military applications for drones continue to be developed. For a look at what's ahead, we're joined by P.W. Singer. He's with New America, a think tank that looks at U.S. politics and policy in the digital age. Over the last decade, they've gone from you know having a handful in the U.S. military inventory to over 10,000 in the air, another 12,000 unmanned systems on the ground. There's also a question of what's going to be developed next when you're thinking about you know the next generation of this technology. So drones used to look like the manned airplanes they were replacing, sometimes even with the cockpit painted over. Now we're seeing them take on all sorts of sizes, shapes, forms. And then the other big change 
is their intelligence and their autonomy, their ability to do more on your own. So it used to be that a human on the ground would be controlling everything that the robot was doing from afar, sort of joysticking the operation. Now we're seeing them able to do things like take off and land on their own, fly mission waypoints on their own, even cooperate with other drones on their own, uh, which is the idea of swarming. So there's just all sorts of new advances to happen there. When it comes to where the United States is with this technology, is it still leading the technology race? The United States is ahead, and it darn well should be, given that it spends uh, basically over 40% of all the world's military spending. It's also made the most use of these technologies in the last decade, given how operational the U.S. military has been you know, everywhere from Iraq to Afghanistan. But that edge, that lead, that idea of being a generation or two ahead in technology, the way it's been against all other comers for the last 70 years, that edge is not the same. All right. So let's talk about some of the limitations of drones in the war on terror and elsewhere. As we see the Obama administration and perhaps future administrations relying on them more and more, are there mistakes in that thinking? The technology is amazing. It allows you a level of surveillance and precision that was literally unimaginable a couple of generations ago. You think about the idea of not dropping hundreds of bombs over a city in the hope that you might hit a single target to you can identify and take out that individual target. It's an amazing amount of precision. It, it's an amazing capability. On the other hand, they in no way, shape, or form does it give you perfection in war. Uh, as precise as that technology is, bad things happen when you start blowing things up. Bad things happen in terms of uh, civilians caught in the way. Bad things happen in terms of your intelligence may not be as good as you thought. You may have it wrong in who you're going after. You also have to weigh the broader strategic impact of the operation. So are you taking out this individual is it worth, though, the blowback in terms of everything from the uh, local anger over drone strikes happening in somebody's village to accidental civilian casualties and other people being pulled into war to is it something, you know, kind of the parallel of the debate over Guantanamo where it's harming your overall image? So you've got to be weighing these things. P.W. Singer is a defense analyst and senior fellow at New America, a nonpartisan think tank based in Washington. As the Earth's skies become more populated with drones, from tiny quadcopters to giant predators, the world faces tough choices on how to regulate them. Drones aren't going away. The big question is how we manage this technology. You've been listening to How Drones Are Reshaping the World on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Mia Lobel and produced by Rob Sachs with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Mark Hannis, Greg Moynihan, Jennifer Strong, and Dan Gettinger with the Center for the Study of the Drone. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.